Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we are going to be recapping Queen of the Black Coast by Robert E. Howard. The story was published in 1934. This story was nominated by one of our really, truly awesome Patreon supporters. And it is also the first story from a brand new Patreon ballot. This story is a novella. That means we're going to do it in two parts. It's almost always what we do with novellas. And so it also means then that this is going to be the last story that we'll do in 2021. And so in 2022, we're going to start off with the other stories that people voted for. And that's going to include The Mask of the Red Death by Edgar Allan Poe. Also Sand Kings by George R.R. R. Martin. Uh, just two phenomenal stories that are going to be a great way to start a year we also took two stories off this ballot and put them on Patreon. One of them was The New Daughter by John Connolly, which we just did as an extra bonus episode, an extra extra episode for people at our second level and up. But then we also took the story Elizabeth by C.F. Keery as our Halloween episode. And hey, doing Halloween episodes on Patreon is a new thing this year because... We hit that goal. That was a goal that we had, a crowdfunding goal, and we hit that thanks to all of our generous supporters. Yeah, your support really means the world to us. We are so grateful for anybody and everybody who can support us financially through Patreon, and also for those of you who have written reviews. Hey, if you haven't written a review of our show yet on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the shows, please just pause for a second and go do that. That helps us out a lot too if you can't support us financially. But like I said, we are just overflowing with gratitude for all of the support we've gotten leading up to this moment in our network. And hey, there's more big news that we got because of our Patreon supporters. We hit the goal of covering At the Mountains of Madness. So thank you again so much. That's an H.P. Lovecraft novel. Uh, we've been slowly recording the episodes. I think we've been slowly releasing them as well. And this is so exciting for both of us. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for all of your support. Yeah, we're at the point that this is airing, which is where Brandon is a little unsure about what's going on uh, because of the, the <laughs> lag here. But yes, at the point that this is airing, we should have at least four, if not five episodes up. We are going to take a dozen episodes, maybe even a few more than that, to cover at the Mountains of Madness. And that is a real privilege, right, to be able to take that much time to do one episode per chapter to really sit with that story for a long time in its detail. And yeah, we're just so grateful that you have made that possible for us. And if you would like to hear that coverage and you're not already with us on Patreon, please join us. Uh, you can find us at patreon.com slash Clay Temple Media. And, you know, even beyond at the Mountains of Madness, there's just so much stuff on Patreon at this point. You get a lot for joining <laughs> up with us. But uh, yeah, let's uh, let's turn our attention to this story, to Queen of the Black Coast. Somehow, this is our first Conan story, or at least, you know, the first Conan story that we're doing on Elder Sign. And it it's weird because it does not feel that way to me at all, because because we did the Phoenix on the Sword on Patreon. I did Hour of the Dragon. That's the, the one Conan novel. I did that for Atos, my solo show. And also I have talked about Conan as a guest on the podcast Plot Points. And so it feels to me like we have done a lot of Conan like on the radio. When in <laughs> fact, for people who only listen to this show on the, the network, this is the first Conan story that they're, they're going to get from us. And it's a big story. Uh, this is going to have us touch on just about everything that Howard is known for, uh, both both good and bad, for good and for ill. And so, yeah, let's let's get into it. Brandon, you want to uh, take us through Queen of the Black Coast? 
So just to give our listeners a head up here, Queen of the Black Coast is divided into five chapters, hence it's a novella. And each of these chapters, save the last chapter, which is really a coda, are sort of mini adventures in their own right, though the story does have a narrative through line. Each chapter also opens with a bit of free verse or other uh, forms of poetry that are taken from what's known as the Song of Belit. So let's get into the story now. Chapter one is entitled, Conan Joins the Pirates, and begins with this bit of verse. Believe green buds awaken in the spring. The autumn paints the leaves with somber fire. Believe I held my heart in violet to lavish on one man my hot desire. Uh, so we're probably talking about Belit here a little bit, and <laughs> she's going to lavish on one man her hot desire. We're going to get some of that in this chapter. Uh, but really, the story just opens right in the middle of some action. A man wearing chainmail armor and a red cloak riding a large horse is racing down the streets that lead to the wharf. He is being pursued by people we can't see yet. And then he rears his horse kind of at the edge of the wharf so that it goes up on its hind legs and he leaps off the saddle and lands aboard a small trading ship and tells the shipmaster to get underway like right now. And naturally, the shipmaster is a little put off by this mysterious horseman's acrobatics and aggressiveness. And he tells the writer that his boat is headed for Cush and that he'll need some form of recompense if he's going to take on a passenger. The writer says that he'll pay with his steel and that he's in a rush because a squad of horsemen are making the are making their way down to the wharf, and their arbalests are getting into striking range of the boat. Now, the crewmen on the ship at this point are furious about how much work they have to do, like rushed work to get underway, but so be it. They're the crew, and the master is the master. So the ship really gets underway here without incident. And now that things have calmed down, the shipmaster and Conan... It's Conan in the in the mail in the cloak here. <laughs> Make their introductions. Uh, the shipmaster's name is Tito. He's a trader, as we said, and he's headed to Kush to trade beads and silks and sugar and brass hilted swords to the Black Kings. Uh, and he hopes to get ivory, copper, copper ore, slaves, and pearls in return. One of these things is not like the other. Now it's Conan's turn to tell Tito about how he got into the predicament that opened the action of the chapter. Conan came to Argos looking for work, and Conan's work is mercenary work, by and large. And it turns out, though, there are no wars on, so Conan really can't find a job. But that didn't keep him out of trouble. And what Conan does now in telling his story to Tito is basically recount the plot of the Solomon Kane story we read, the blue flame <laughs> of vengeance here. Uh, Conan rode into town. He made friends with a young man. That young man killed a King's guardsman after the guardsman insulted the young man's lady love. And Conan, because of his acquaintance with this man, gets hauled into court, so the stories diverge here a little bit, uh, where he ends up having a violent dispute with the judge about the nature of justice and loyalty. 
And when Conan is asked then to give up the location of his friend who was in hiding, uh, he, he kills the judge. That's the violent dispute there. And then he fights his way out of the courtroom. He steals a horse and then he rides down uh, to the wharf to escape on Tito's boat. And Tito is very understanding about this. Tito gets it. Uh, Society can be pretty unjust sometimes. And so he invites Conan up to the poop deck where they consummate their new friendship with a beer. Tito tells Conan that most of the crew isn't up for fighting. And you know what? It will be good to have a fighting man on board. So you can pay with your steel, Conan. As the ship continues southward, it passes the coast of Shem. Uh, Tito doesn't trade with Shem because there's really just little profit in it. Tito also doesn't pull into the, uh, and here I'm going to read from the text a little bit. Uh, Tito also doesn't pull into the, quote, broad bay where the Styx River emptied its gigantic flood into the ocean and where the black castles of Kemi loomed over the blue waters. Ships did not put unasked into this port where dusky sorcerers wove awful spells in the murk of sacrificial smoke mounting eternally from bloodstained altars where naked women screamed and were set the old serpent, archdemon of the Hyborians, but god of the Stygians, was said to writhe his shining coils among his worshippers. I just liked that bit of descriptive prose. After passing the coast of Stygia, uh, Tito's ship is finally closing in on Cush. And Howard really pauses the momentum of the narrative here to let us know that Conan is really a, a land animal. You know, he's not a sea creature. And then Howard gives us the pedigree of all of Conan's clothing, really, where his mail came from, where his cloak came from. And this is world building by naming unfamiliar places. We've talked about this in the past. That What a lot of this style of writing really reminds me, though, of is uh, Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time, which we've also brought up here and there. Jordan wrote a bunch of Conan stories himself, and, and Conan and Howard's style loops large over that opus. I really just said all that to avoid taking five minutes describing where Conan's clothes came from. <laughs> but in any event, uh, when the ship gets to Kush, all they find there are smoldering ruins. Pirates have raided Kush. And Tito says that his ship often avoids conflict with pirates. They have, you know, beaten some pirates here and there, some reavers in the past. But they usually just try to get away from conflict. As we've said, the crewmen are not really fighting men. But if Tito's ship does encounter Belit's ship, the Tigris, they'll be in real trouble. They're basically, they'll basically have to fight. Belit, Tito goes on to say, is the, quote, wildest she-devil unhanged. And it probably was her who raided Kush. Also, she's known as the Queen of the Black Coast, and hey, that's our title. And she and her crew are a real force to be reckoned with. If Tito's ship comes across the Tigris, they might have to surrender. But, Tito says, it rasps the soul to give up life without a struggle. 
basically what happens next is that almost immediately after Tito says this, uh, <laughs> his ship rented to Belit and the T- the Tigris. Uh, Conan begrudgingly asks for a bow. It's not really a man's weapon, but he'll use it if he has to so that he can shoot some people aboard the Tigris while Tito's ship tries to hightail it out of this area. But Tito's ship is quickly overtaken, and then much swashbuckling action ensues. Uh, basically, Conan finds himself aboard the Tigris and starts hewing down the black crewmen of that ship. And then the Argus, which is Tito's ship, loses the fight, and Conan is really the last man from that boat standing. As Conan is just hewing down Belit's crew, the Belit jumps into the fray uh, of the fight to stop her black crewmen from continuing the fight because she doesn't want Conan to die. Let's take a moment to describe Belit here. Uh, this is what Howard writes of her. She was slender, yet formed like a goddess, at once lithe and voluptuous. Her only garment was a broad silken girdle. Her white ivory limbs and the ivory globes of her breasts drove a beat of fierce passion through the Sumerian's pulse. Even in the panting fury of battle, her rich black hair, black as a Stygian night, fell in rippling, burnished clusters down her supple back. She was untamed as a desert wind, supple and dangerous as a she-panther. And then what happens after Conan sees this woman we've just see, uh, heard described, uh, he and Belit form a sort of detente. Really what happens is that Belit and, and Conan fall immediately in love, I guess, though that might be too strong of a word. Uh, Belit needs Conan, she says, to uh, crush her with his love. She also yeah. <laughs> wants Conan to be her king while she continues her pirate adventures. And the Argus is sort of sinking and destroyed. So Conan thinks, eh, why not? So the crew of the Tigris get all of the goods off the Argus. Then Belit takes off all of her clothes and performs a mating dance. And then Conan does crush her with his love. And that's the end of chapter one. Yeah, I was not sure, Brandon, what you were going to do with this description here. If you were going to avoid it or not, I would have because <laughs> I'm a prude. And that description is, uh, uh, I think, on the border of tawdry and just downright <laughs> pornographic there. But uh, I think you you approached it with the exact right tone. Also, this this business about the bow, like about archery not being manly about it, I guess, being womanly or something like that. That is just begging for us in the discussion episode to take up the question, who would win in a fight, Conan or Robin Hood? So uh, next episode, we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll possibly have that that debate. Yeah, there's a, a lot going on in, in this chapter. I mean, this is a huge story. Chapter one does a lot of the, you know, the introduction. And in fact, I'm going to say a few things, I guess, that are, are really designed to orient us and, and really just talk about the world building. And especially for people who perhaps haven't read a lot of Conan or, you know, have and haven't thought about Conan in a while or maybe have never read any Conan. And 
the the big thing to say is that this is pre-Tolkien, and so it is before setting your fantasy story in a secondary world, a, a world that is not our own and is you know wholly your own invention as a, a writer. It, it's it's before that became the default mode of writing fantasy, and so this story is taking place on Earth, but it's prehistory and it's way prehistory. I mean, like tens of thousands of years, and this is all information that we learn back in the very first. Conan story, which is the Phoenix on the Sword. We spent a ton of time, I would say, talking about that when we covered that story. And so, yeah, it's Earth, it's prehistory. But even though it's prehistory, Howard is essentially writing a type of historical fiction here just with some fantasy elements, uh, maybe even just really some light fantasy elements added in. And in that sense, actually, he really prefigures Guy Gabriel K. And so, yeah, Howard's cultures, they're not really made up, or at least, you know, they might be really made up, I suppose, but they're analogs to real world ancient cultures is what I'm trying to say. And so this story starts out in ancient Greece. The, the land that we start out in is Argos. And then we quickly get some casual mentions of where Conan is, like where they're sailing by and where they are sailing to. They sail past Shem and Stygia, and those are analogs for Canaan and Egypt. Uh, and then they are bound for Kush, which is just to say sub-Saharan Africa. And Kush is a perfectly good uh, word that you get in the uh, Old Testament of the Bible or Judaic scripture uh, to refer to sub-Saharan Africa. And None of the other names either are names that Howard has made up. And I think for his contemporary audience, it would have been very obvious what Howard meant by them, though I think that's probably less true in our culture today. And yeah, as I said, we did have a whole discussion about this world building technique when we did the Phoenix on the Sword. But in addition to just these comments, I actually want to highlight two paragraphs where Howard does this and really does, I think, some just masterful world building where we get, you know, a tour of the world. Howard shows us places where this story is not going to actually be set, but does that so that we, the readers, can have a sense of scale and also just a sense of where we are are going to end up. I'm going to read both of these paragraphs. Uh, it's a, a lot of text. I do think it's beautiful. I hope I'll do these justice. But also, you already read one of them, Brandon, but I want to actually situate them side by side and, and talk about them. So uh, listeners are going to hear two different takes on the same paragraph. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That could also be, uh, you know, who, who, who would win in a reading, I suppose, a uh, conversation that uh, our audience can have. But all right, here is what Howard writes. This is the, the first, first bit here. They sighted the coast of Shem, long rolling meadowlands with the white crowns of the towers of cities in the distance, and horsemen with blue-black beards and hooked noses who sat their steeds along the shore and eyed the galley with suspicion. She did not put in. There was scant profit in trade with the sons of Shem. And then the next bit, this is the bit that you already read, Brandon. Nor did Master Tito pull into the broad bay where the Styx River emptied its gigantic flood into the ocean, and the massive black castles of Kemi loomed over the blue waters. Ships did not put unasked into this port, where dusky sorcerers wove awful spells in the murk of sacrificial smoke, mounting eternally from blood-stained altars, where naked women screamed, and where Set, the old serpent, archdemon of the Hyborians, but god of the Stygians, was said to writhe his shining coils among his worshippers. 
So yeah, I think that paragraph in particular was worth reading twice because there's just some gorgeous imagery there, really in both of these sections, some gorgeous imagery. Also, Howard lets us know that sorcerers and spells and human sacrifices are part of this world, just in these descriptions, right? He lets us know this is a fantasy world. There is going to be a numinous element to Conan's adventure, and you know there, there very definitely is. But I also picked these passages because they're going to be useful next episode as well when we're going to devote a big part of the discussion to talking about how race appears and how race functions in this story. And so I want to emphasize here that, well, Howard is emphasizing here features of the bodies of the people who live in these places and that we get hooked noses and we get dusky skin emphasized in these descriptions as well. We don't have to talk about that here. We're going to do that a lot in the discussion episode, but I felt like it was important to point that out here at the opening of our coverage of this story. It is really important to point out. I'm, I'm using the word black uh you know, to describe the black people, the Africans in this story. And that is the word that Howard uses. I'm using it about 90% less frequently than yeah. Howard does. Um, but I'm still going to, you know, I'm still using it uh, enough because it's the descriptive term that, uh, that Howard uses. And uh, I want to give our listeners a real sense of Howard's prose as I do this recap or, or kind of elements of his prose. Um, and I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm going to try not to overemphasize that, but race is certainly a big part of how Howard is conceiving of this world and his world building. Well, let's move on to chapter two. Chapter two is called The Black Lotus. Uh, this is, refers to a, the color of a flower, actually, and now just what I was just talking about. Uh, and the verse that opens this chapter goes like this. In that dead citadel of crumbling stone, her eyes were snarled by that unholy sheen, and curious madness took me by the throat as a rival lover thrust between. So Conan and Belit have been enjoying their time together. They've been raiding ships and coasts and having sex. And when they come across a poison river called Zarkiba, which is death, Belit believes that there's a city upstream and that they could get to it and loot it because the city's haunted and it's a ruin and everyone else who has attempted this job has disappeared or died and she thinks she's got the right man and the right crew to kind of overcome those impossible odds. There's some lore about the animals in these parts the animals are mostly apes or the lore is mostly about the apes. This is a, a jungle river. And it is said that the souls of evil men were imprisoned in these apes for past crimes. But all that Conan sees are sad monkeys as he looks off the, <laughs> the ship. Now, the jungle does make some pretty scary sounds, though, and everybody's a little spooked out. Since the ship is, as Belit puts it, gliding into the realm of horror and death, Conan and Belit start to have a metaphysical conversation about the afterlife. Like, if they die here, what awaits them in the next world? Neither Conan nor Belit are afraid of dying, and that's in part because of their beliefs. Now, they have different beliefs, though. Conan's not afraid of death because he doesn't believe in the hereafter or the afterlife. He says, quote, there is no hope here or hereafter in the cult of my people. Conan's people find pleasure only in the bright madness of battle. 
And when they die, maybe they end up, or at least the cult of his people believes, that they end up in the gray, misty realm of Krom. And it's just better to avoid Krom's gaze in this life, and then if you end up in his realm in the afterlife, also there. The people in Krom's realm wander cheerlessly for all eternity. So it's really just better to make the most of life's pleasures now. So Conan is a hedonist, and he's also a little bit into phenomenology, I guess. He says that if life is an illusion, then he is no less an illusion. And being thus, the illusion is real to him. Uh, So all in all, this is not a bad start, uh, a bad way to dive into the philosophy of phenomenology. It's a nice response to Descartes' project of skepticism as well. Howard has read or at least glossed some philosophy, I think, (laughs) to come up with this. Uh, Bali, on the other hand, believes in the gods and also in the afterlife. She knows that there is life beyond death. And one of the reasons why she knows this is because she loves being crushed by Conan's love so much that if she dies, no matter where she ends up, what afterlife she ends up in, even if it's an abyss, she'll return to aid Conan if he's fighting for his life. I'm sure we'll be talking about this in the discussion a little bit. It's my favorite part of the story, and it's really just a hell of a way to introduce an important plot mechanic. Well, this discussion on metaphysics is over, or rather, it's really interrupted by the sound of screaming above deck. A crew member has been attacked by a giant uh, set-sized snake and dragged into the murky depths of the poisonous river. And so from then on, Conan just takes watch on the deck as the Tigris continues its voyage up the river. Eventually, the ship draws near to the ruins of a desolate city. And in the center of the city is a marble pyramid on whose pinnacle sits a a statue? No. It's a it's a living creature. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's a winged ape. And Niaga, the chief crewman on Belit's ship, speaks at this point and says that they should really have never come to this place uh, because winged apes on top of marble pyramids are just a bad omen, I guess, <laughs> probably in all cultures, but uh, maybe not in Belit's because Belit makes fun of Niaga and his superstitious attitude about a city that she even admits is cursed. Well, the ship pulls into a crumbling wharf and they disembark. The crew heads into the city and they find a temple of the old ones, complete with an altar stained with the blood of what is probably human sacrifices. As the old ones have been mentioned here, Conan asks Belit, or maybe no one in particular, who the old ones are. Belit ignores him, though because she knows that uh, priests have been known to hide real treasures, the real treasure of a, of, a, of a temple or of a city, beneath the sacrificial altar. So the crew gets to work lifting up the altar. And immediately, they are interrupted by a snake in the grass, like Belit shrieks, and she asks Conan to go and kill the snake that she's seen. So Conan walks some steps away from the altar into this grass to look for the snake. And Belit has kind of accompanied him, but I guess she's somewhere between Conan and the men at the altar. Uh, The men at the altar are really struggling to lift it 
because it turns out that's not the mechanism by which the altar is attached to the ground. It's on some kind of rotating hinge and they're able to rotate the altar open, but this sets off a booby trap somehow that displaces a support holding up some columns and then the columns fall and crush the black crewman. Uh, and this crushing is not done with love. Uh, <laughs> B- B- Bali admits here that she really just wanted to get Conan away from an area that she suspected was booby trap. And there never really was a snake in the grass. Uh, the, the, it doesn't matter. The other crewman, now that the booby trap has gone off, they clear away the rubble and they get their crewmates away from this area and they descend into the crypt beneath the altar, which is a place full of treasure. Uh, Bali immediately gloms on to a, I suppose it's a ruby necklace, though it's described as like droplets of frozen blood or something along those lines on a long wire. And she just takes that thing right away. And then she orders the crewman to take the rest of the treasure back up to the ship. And at this point, one of the crewmen directs Bali's attention to her ship. Bali at first thinks that another boat has followed them upriver and is going to steal the treasure from them But now that they've done all the hard work. But instead, what everyone sees is that wing deep flying off of their boat and into the jungle. And, you know, Conan's spidey sense tingles here and he goes to investigate and he finds that the creature has stolen or destroyed all of the ship's supply of water. And since you can't drink treasure, and since the river is poisoned, Conan has got to lead an expedition into the jungle with 20 men. He takes 20 men to find fresh water to support the crew on their way out of this cursed land. And as Conan and this crew get deeper into the jungle, Conan feels like they're being followed. So he tells the crew to go on ahead, and he's going to wait and hide in some little grove or cops or underbrush and snare whatever beast is tracking them. But as Conan is hiding to wait for whatever it is, he discovers that he's in a type of flower patch. Really, he's surrounded by Black Lotus, whose juice was death and whose scent brought dream-haunted slumber. And as he realizes this, where he is or what he's surrounded by, he is knocked unconscious by the flowers. And that's the end of chapter two. Yeah. He just passes out in like a a poppy field essentially. And uh, we'll have to see what comes of that in chapter three. But yeah, so it turns out, right. that chapter one was really all just prologue. It was just about getting Conan onto Belit's ship. And even as this chapter, chapter two opens, it's, it's pretty clear that, there's been a gap of a few weeks, maybe even a few months, right? Conan is comfortable on the Tigris, and this is just what his life is now. They've clearly gone on some raids and had some adventures together that we don't get told about. This is all just happening between the pages of chapter one and chapter two. And 
this chapter as well is where the the real weird element gets introduced, the weird tales element, I should say, and that is this mysterious ruined city in the heart of the jungle that even in this introductory chapter clearly has some attributes that run contrary to our expectations of what the world is like. Here, yeah, this mostly comes in the form of a flying ape, also called a, a devil ape by Conan. And I really appreciate how Howard introduces this element actually through dialogue. It is very different from how Lovecraft would do this, right? Lovecraft would write a very dense, very long paragraph of description and would use phrases such as not unlike a bat and, you know, like that sort of thing. And <laughs> I do love Lovecraft's technique. I really quite enjoy that way of doing things. But that works for Lovecraft when he's writing stories about nerds, right? When he's writing stories about scholars <laughs> having accidental adventures. But Howard is writing an adventure story, right? And so he does this through dialogue, some very punchy dialogue, in fact. And so when he wants to say that this creature is like an ape, but it's got bat wings and it's it's perched on top of a column like a bird, he just has three different characters think that it is one of those things. And that way, Howard doesn't ever really have to describe it in any more detail than that. And it becomes this, you know, subjective experience for the characters as well. I think it's just a phenomenal technique. Really well done. I also, like you, Brandon, have to say just how awesome this philosophical and cosmological conversation between Conan and Belit is. Yeah, they talk about the, the nature of reality, the afterlife, fate versus free will. I mean, just all of that over the course of a single page and really all while setting up an adventure with you know this winged ape. We'll take this up in the discussion. You know, I think that's fairly obvious, but I just wanted to make sure that I say here that it's some pretty awesome storytelling. And then the last thing I want to emphasize here before we move on to chapter three is also just to set up the discussion episode. And that is about the crew of the Tigress. I, I want to make sure that we uh, we understand that these are black slaves who are owned by a white woman and now also by a white man, Conan, whom Belit introduces to them as their master. Some of the descriptions here are, are, are not great. We'll probably take those up in the discussion episode. But also, these dudes are just fodder, right? I mean, Belit just lets four of them get crushed in the rubble of, you know, that's caused by this booby trap so that she can get the, the treasure. And yet she knows full well that this is likely to happen. And so she makes sure to get Conan out of that situation, but then leaves her crew, these slaves, just to die without seemingly to have any thought about about it have any hesitation about doing that it's 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 harsh it is really harsh it's a rough concept in this story um bully is certainly like a villainous there's a lot i and i hope we talk about it in in our discussion episode of the characterization of conan in the story that is really unsympathetic like deeply unsympathetic and maybe like psychopathic on some level <laughs> uh you know but Howard does address some of that, like not directly in the text, but talking about how Conan is essentially a hedonist, like his only real feelings come from battle. And all of that is consistent characterization. It's just really un unpleasant characterization. Well, let's move on to chapter three now. This chapter is titled Horror in the Jungle, and the verse that opens it goes like this. Was it a dream the knighted lotus brought? 
Then cursed the dream that bought my sluggish life, and cursed each laggard hour that does not see hot blood drip blackly from the crimsoned knife. Okay, so this chapter opens with Conan in the Black Lotus-induced dreamscape, and this is actually the mechanic that Howard is going to use uh, to give us the history of this ancient city. It starts out like a general creation myth. There's nothing, a void, and then the void starts giving shape to things, namely the the pyramid in the city. And then it makes beings who are humanoid, but distinctly not human. And these humanoids have come from like a totally different evolutionary chain from us, though they look like men. They have wings and in all of their numinous qualities, they're superior to mankind. And I suppose the physical quality of being able to fly is a kind of a symbolic mode of superiority. We see this with like angel imagery and stuff like that. But although these humanoid creatures are, are almost in every way superior to mankind, they are mortal nonetheless. After millions of years, a great ecological change took place, and it had a really negative effect on the ecosystem around the cities. And these humanoid creatures should have really just left their city, but they didn't. And slowly the jungle kind of started an incursion upon the city. And then there were earthquakes that destroyed sections of the city, and the river became poisoned over time. And those who stayed and drank the water and lived, many who, many who drank the water died. Uh, those who stayed and lived became corrupted. Those who had been winged gods became pinioned demons, and their souls became perverted. They destroyed one another through cannibalism and feuds until only one of these twisted creatures remained. Over time, humans discovered this city, but none could really escape the jungle on their way out. And as these humans tried to take shelter in the city or survive there, a hideous shape performed weird and awful rites about and above each person who slept in the city. Soon, the historical nature of the dream catches up, I should say maybe chronological nature, <laughs> catches up to the present moment, and Conan watches in this lotus-induced dream, the crew of the Tigris disembark and loot the city, and then he, eventually he watches the crew of spearmen he took to find water get attacked by the lone remaining winged monstrosity. And as Conan sees this, he, he tries to force himself out of the dream. And this takes a huge effort. But eventually he is able to get out of the dream. And when he does, he, he wakes up, he calls for the leader of the squad that he sent out, but he hears no response. So he tracks the squad through, through footprints in the jungle underbrush, and he finds evidence that the spearmen have fled from something in terror. He looks around and sees that the squad leader has been reduced to an almost animalistic form or nature. And then the squad leader lunges to attack Conan. And, and so Conan is forced to kill this man. And then Conan follows a, a, a cliff trail to find the rest of the bodies of the spearmen that made up his squad. 
Jackals and birds of prey are already circling in on the position of these dead bodies. So Conan just gets out of there and runs toward the tigress. Like he, he, it's clear that he doesn't think enough of these people to think of them as you know brothers in arms or anything like that. He just leaves their bodies to the to the predators. When Conan gets to the ship, he finds more bodies and pieces of bodies strewn all over the place. And upon the deck of the boat is something that glimmered ivory white in the faint twilight. It's the queen of the black coast, and she's hanging from the yardarm of her own ship. She is hanging from the ruby necklace that she looted from the tomb. And this ends chapter three. Yeah, this this ends with a, a pretty gruesome image. Uh, also, just in terms of narrative technique, it is ending with the fridging of Belit, right? For, <laughs> and, and for all her flaws, she was a strong-willed character. And so I, I was hoping that she was going to have more to do in this story. I was hoping she was going to end up rescuing Conan. Uh, if only there were an afterlife, uh, and then maybe maybe she could. Uh, it's, it's even more obvious foreshadowing there than Howard actually engages in back in chapter two. But yeah, the, the central component of this chapter is this really cool drug-induced dream that does all the exposition about the weird element here. And Howard is really thinking about deep time in this section. He's imagining that humans have not been the only intelligent species on the planet and uh, that this intelligent species is not even some other branch of primate, but something else entirely. And he has this great phrase that I'll just read. He describes these people as not a branch of the mysterious stalk of evolution that culminated in man, but the ripe blossom on an alien tree, which is just really fantastic. And and then, of course, right, Conan gets the entire story of the demise of their civilization over the course of millions of years. And this whole passage just ends up well, really, it's a description of climate change as a type of cosmic <laughs> horror, and it is absolutely brilliant. Like this, just as a standalone description, just the dream, like this could have been published as its own story. It's so cool. Yeah, I loved it. I mean, there there are really two passages of the story that I really love. One is the the metaphysical passage, and the other one is this. This is such a cool bit of cosmic horror and weird writing saying that people are essentially corrupted uh, from their own environment. I mean, the world does go through periods of change. We know, we know this, uh, but then also the, the real corruption of this civilization is that they were unwilling to give up their kind of perfect place. And so they're essentially punished by the earth for it. Um, and, and so like the corruption is, is twofold. The environment works on the people, but the people are then unwilling to adapt or change. And so they're deleted from the evolutionary record, from the historical record. At least as far as we know. But uh, I don't know. Someday there might be an expedition to Antarctica that might find different. <laughs> yes, we'll, we'll have to keep our eye on, on if that shows up in any weird fiction novels or tales. <laughs> Well, chapter four is called The Attack from the Air, and here is our snippet from the Song of Belit. The shadows were black around him. The dripping jaws gaped wide. Thicker than rain, the red drops fell. But my love was fiercer than death's black spell. Nor all the iron walls of hell could keep me 
from his side. I really like, actually really like these bits of poetry. I think, I think uh, Howard has done something pretty great by giving us these weird uh, sections of, of like what is an ultimately an epic poem about Conan's time with Belit. Uh, and they all have a different like meter and rhyme scheme, but I, I quite like them. Yeah, I think Howard is actually a really excellent poet, and we should probably at some point uh, devote an entire episode to looking at a few of his poems, not the poems that you know end up as these epigrams at the front of these chapters and stories and so on, but 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 his just pure poetry that he wrote for you know you know to, for the sake of writing poetry to stand alone as poetry that might be something fun to take a look at someday. Yeah, I would love to do that. I mean, you can just tell by reading these, he has a real sense of meter and and rhyme scheme. He knows the techniques. He knows iambic pentameter. He knows different, you know, rhyme schemes. He knows free verse. You can tell he's technically uh, proficient, if not very good at poetry of the of the technical sides of poetry and i think that these epigrams really display that quite well the the way the different uh meters especially communicate emotion to us about what he's you know what is the sadness the the victory the excitement the adventure it's all here and it's uh and howard is using meter essentially to communicate that and it's exciting i mean i really was surprised by this when i was reading the story yeah, I also really like the the conceit here, which is that these are primary sources. These are, you know, evidence actually from this prehistoric past that has survived, which I guess then technically makes it historic if there's actual writing that survived <laughs> from it, right? But th- that's the conceit is that there are these bits that have survived. And I guess that, you know, Howard has access to them somehow, and he's now taking this poem uh, here uh, that's that's really in the first person from the point of view of Conan. He, he's taking this poem and he's like doing the novelization of it. Yeah, that that's right. I mean, that that does how that does seem how it feels. And he's it also gives us the sense that there's a much longer, you know, maybe cycle here about the Song of Polite. And we're only getting the epigrams that are relevant to uh to the storytelling, the method of storytelling that Howard is using. And it really reminds me of the way like T.H. White condensed and rewrote La Morte d'Arthur by Sir Thomas Mallory to, to write The Once and Future King. It has that same sort of uh, feel to it or method to it, I think. All right. Well, chapter four is... Chapter four begins with Conan's return to the city, but this is all kind of told in past tense a little bit, like we're leading up to a moment. So Conan has returned to the city and now he's perched on top of the pyramid where the winged monkey was uh, waiting to fight. What he's done before getting to the top of the pyramid is he's taken Belit down from the yard arm and he's wrapped her in his cloak and placed her upon a pyre that he built from pieces of the ruined deck of the Tigris. Conan, in uh, in a rage, threw all of the loot that they stole from the city overboard and really, he's in a classic like barbarian berserk mode here <laughs> and he really just needs to kill something in order to get on with his life. Now, what he really wonders, though, is why he's the only one to have been spared in this uh, slow attack and kind of lurking attack on the crew of the Tigris. And he imagines it's because he's the most worthy adversary for the creature 
that lurks in the jungle and flies through the air. So ba- basically the exact plot of Predator here. <laughs> and this is now the part of the story where the boss fight happens. Uh, so there are like little sub battles that Conan needs to overcome before he can fight the true boss. And basically 20 hyena like creatures emerge from the jungle to attack Conan first. And some of them he can strike down with his bow, his aim being true, but soon he's just overwhelmed and he has to jump down to the land to fight. Uh, largely his male armor protects him from the worst of these attacks from these creatures who uh, I couldn't tell from the text if Howard was indicating are animals that have trapped the the souls of the squad that he took out into the jungle. I'm not quite sure about that. It may be here. It may not be. Anyway, as Conan is getting really fr- fatigued from this fight with these hyena-like creatures, he hears the thrashing of bat wings close to his head. So he picks up his sword again, looking to the sky. But there's nothing in the sky. And instead, another column collapses really almost right on top of him, stunning him. And he falls to the ground and the pieces of the stone column pin him down by his legs. Then the winged creature appears and Conan can't fight it. His sword has flew away from him. It's too far for him to reach in his pinned down state. You know, he can't move because he's trapped by these stones from the column. And then suddenly a white flash appears between him and the winged creature. It is Belit returned from the dead to protect Conan. And Conan remembers what she said. Were I still in death and you fighting for life, I would come back from the abyss. Her presence gives Conan new strength. So he tosses the stone off his legs and gets up to face the flying creature. The creature dies toward Conan and he swings his sword, cleaving the hideous thing in two across its torso. And now the oldest race in the world is extinct. Conan lifts his eyes to survey the carnage, to look at the hyena-like beasts that he's just massacred, and finds that there are no beasts, only men who have been enslaved by the wicked creature. And these men turn to dust before him. Conan leaves the city and goes back to the Tigris, setting her adrift in order to get out of the jungle, and Belit still lays upon the pyre on the deck. That's the end of chapter four. Well, as usual, Brandon, you did a really excellent job with this chapter, a chapter that is essentially just one long action sequence. And as I have said before with Howard, if I had been doing the recap, I probably would have summarized this simply by saying, (laughs) so there was a fight. Uh, But of course, that would hardly do justice to Howard's skill at writing these action sequences. And you do a really great job of of highlighting that, Brandon. I really appreciate that. And uh, yeah, I totally called it. Uh, I knew Belit was going to come back, right? (laughs) Though I I will say, even though it is totally foreshadowed this way, I really did not not actually expect that she was going to come back as a ghost. That really might be a bit too much in one story, right? If your story is already about a prehistoric civilization of non-human people with wings, maybe it shouldn't also have ghosts. But, you know, at the same time, right, the story needed Belit to play a role here. Yeah, I I also did not expect her to come back and actually uh, cause the resolution to this fight, really. 
it surprised me, even though it is foreshadowed like deeply. And that's because I think Howard does such a real a good job with that uh, metaphysical conversation that he contextualizes the conversation in the actual moment that Belit and Conan are in. So it doesn't feel like foreshadowing, even though it so clearly is. And so the moment comes as, as a surprise when Belit comes back, but it also is the most natural thing to happen in the story. And I think that, you know, Howard's really got his technique down in this one. Yeah, I think the, the way that he actually is able to pull this trick, right, is that we assume that Conan's point of view that, you know, there is no afterlife and that we all just need to be living in the present, this life, you know, this of, of pure hedonism. We assume that that's going to turn out to be validated by the events of this story. And so I think, you know, we have a sense that, yep, Belita is talking about her own death. That means she is going to die and that her death is going to prove to Conan that there is, in fact, no afterlife and that essentially life itself also has no purpose, no, no, no point, no meaning other than to, you know, be enjoying your present moment. But no, it turns out Belit's right. And she can totally come back as a ghost and like <laughs> kill, <laughs> kill creatures, I guess. So. Yeah, it works. That's all I'll say. It works. Uh, that, that's fine. <laughs> all right. We've got one chapter to go here. Yeah, this will be a really, really short section here. This chapter is called The Funeral Pyre. And here is the song of Belit. Now we are done with roaming evermore. No more, no more the oars, the windy harps refrain. No crimson pennant frights the dusky shore. Blue girdle of the world, receive again her whom thou gavest me. It's a lovely elegy. Uh, I really like this one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this at a funeral or make it read it my own. <laughs> so Conan has brought the Tigris to shore and then he leaves the ship for the final time. The ocean, Conan thinks, will be a worse place without Belit and her ship marauding and raiding and murdering people. <laughs> so that's an interesting sentiment. Really what Conan is feeling is that he's alone again with no companion at his side or in his bed. He sets the pyre alight and pushes the ship out onto the ocean. And Conan watches as the flame destroys the ship while it sinks into the sea. And here's the, the final line of the story. So passed the queen of the black coast and leaning on his red stained sword, Conan stood silently until the red glow had faded far out in the blue hazes and dawn splashed its rose and gold over the ocean. The end. Right. So Conan just used the ship as a funeral pyre, but isn't that his ride? Like, how is he going to get home now? <laughs> I, think, I think he's further, he's further out of the jungle. I think he rode around for a little bit to find a safe place to, to pull in. Well, I'm not saying he's in immediate danger here, but like, Still, how is he going to get home, <laughs> right? Like, is he going to call some kind of uh, ocean taxi or something, I guess? No, but uh, no, seriously, this is actually a really rich ending with some some beautiful and moody prose and also this uh, is gorgeous uh, epigram of a, a poem to open it up. And uh, we're going to talk maybe a little bit more about this chapter in the craft segment on our next episode, the discussion episode. But before we leave today, I also want to read a bit from, uh, from, from this chapter. It's actually the opening paragraph of this story. And I just want to read it verbatim because it's so good. And in fact, um, has some resonances with the lines that you just read as well, Brandon. Again, dawn tinged the ocean. 
A redder glow lit the river mouth. Conan of Cameria leaned on his great sword upon the white beach, watching the tigress swinging out on her last voyage. There was no light in his eyes that contemplated the glassy swells. Out of the rolling blue waters, all glory and wonder had gone. A fierce revulsion shook him as he gazed at the green surges that deepened into purple hazes of mystery. And what I especially love about this descriptive paragraph is this use of, of, of colors, this really evocative use of colors, right? We get green and purple and red and white and, and blue, and it just paints this really vivid picture, and it's just awesome. And and the, the vividness here of these colors are almost kind of standing in for the different emotions that Conan is feeling. So it's not just a description of what this scene looks like. It is also uh, working as a description of what is happening internally for Conan as well. And I think this is just some expert writing. This is the best Howard story I think we've we've read together so far. There, there's just a lot to commend it on the technical level. And uh, I really enjoyed reading it. It's a great adventure story, but uh, we'll have a lot to talk to, I think. We'll have a lot to speak to about uh, maybe some misses in this story as well when, when we get to our discussion episode. Right. I mean, it's unfortunate that a story that is this well crafted, though we might have some critiques of that too, but, but certainly on a, a sentence and paragraph level, just absolutely masterful and a, a fun adventure. It's a shame that that has uh, so much else going on in it to, to detract from the the appreciation of those things, all of which we will take up in the discussion episode. And so that is going to do it for this one. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brennan Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. If you'd like to support the network and get access to scores of bonus episodes, including the first Robert E. Howard Conan story, The Phoenix on the Sword, and the dozens of episodes we're going to end up doing on Lovecraft's novel at the Mountains of Madness, Please, please check us out on Patreon. Please support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Media. And please also head on over to the Clay Temple forums or stop by the Clay Temple Media subreddit and let us know what you thought of Queen of the Black Coast. And yeah, as we have said many times on this episode, we're going to be back next time with our second episode on this story where we will take up the, the themes and motifs and talk about writing craft and uh, maybe a few other odds and ends. I, you know, no promises that we're actually going to do uh, who would win in a fight, Robin Hood or Conan, <laughs> but there's a chance we will. And at any rate, until then, we greet you and say farewell.